You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the final event from Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. This hybrid conference took place on the 2nd and 3rd of December 2021 in UCD Humanities Institute and featured 15 speakers across seven panels. Framing Aging is supported by Welcome Trust. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from all our previous events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie. This episode features Panel 5, Aging Across the Disciplines. The speakers were Desmond O'Neill from Trinity College Dublin, who presented on Towards Deeper Synergies Between Humanities and Gerontology, and Gemma Carney from Queen's University Belfast, who presented on The Politics of Working Across Disciplines, An Insider's View. Thanks very much, and uh, this has been just fantastic. I'll stick to time. And one of the things that I was most fascinated by uh, in the discussion around Stephen Sondheim was his fear and obsession about ever repeating what he'd ever done. If any song sounded like a song he'd done before, um, uh, he would reject it, uh, unlike Bach, who kept recycling everything. So um, I've tried to, to move on from the last presentation. I've, given, I've been very enriched by um, what I've heard, some of what I heard yesterday, as you see, has has influenced me, and I think hopefully as we get to do the book, we will do, uh, you know, we'll even find more of this kind of uh, generativity uh, between ourselves. So our challenge is, as ever, uh, not one, that's, one that isn't new to us, is how to find unity and diversity and a permanent principle in the midst of flux. So I actually was surprised to find yesterday that my work had possibly been done for me already because uh, I have to say I wasn't aware of the University of Toronto Quarterly. I've downloaded every chapter, read most of them. Absolutely phenomenal piece of work. But what really impressed me was uh, an unashamed and unabashed health humanities approach. So uh, the fact that this synergy is there uh, to me is really, really encouraging. And I think there's much to be learned from each field. And certainly I've hugely benefited in my work in both areas by by eclectically uh, picking and choosing uh, what seems apparent. And what's been great about the two areas is they've allowed me to compare and contrast and see things I didn't see before. So what I think, hopefully, I think we can agree on is uh, later life is life at its most complex, at its most rich in many ways. Our added years are an extraordinary, if underappreciated, bonus but it comes with particular challenges. And again, the challenge, the, the, as ever, one of the dreadful things about the Irish Citizens' Assembly, which everybody thinks is such a great idea, is when they came to ageing, all they could see were the challenges of ageing. It was all about healthcare costs and welfare. It was dreadful. So uh, this is obviously, and this comes through the, the, the all of what we're doing, though I have to say I, I love Alexis de Champfort's that uh, we come as a novice to every stage in life. Gerontology and geriatrics have made a huge contribution to our understanding, but can be hampered by an agnosia, collective agnosia or neglect of our origins 
and the confluence with the problematization of aging. And I have to say, I very much appreciate uh, Susan Pickard's work here. And it really is interesting. Every time I get ticked off by a social gerontologist about, you know, being very medical model or that, I turn to the latest edition of the social sciences of the uh, of the journals of gerontology, and it's about depression and death and palliative care. And <laughs> elder, you know, I'm going wait, 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 wait a minute here. Um, in fact, if I were to be a medical model, that might be. About. Anyway, okay. And the acronym I'll use because I have to say one of the things that I, I do get a bit concerned about is uh, people squabbling over titles and uh, and boundaries to a certain extent. So humanities, arts and cultural gerontology, as the acronym we'll use, provides a potent opportunity for reframing, recontextualization, and energising the epistemology of ageing. So it's a real opportunity. And, uh, but, and again, I think the uh, multi-directionality of flow, however, is something that I think was really importantly touched on and which I've included. So our challenge is creating a shared and thriving, and I think thriving must be about a degree of um, bringing in new generations, generalizability, working in other areas, interdisciplinary space, which promotes high standards of scholarship with bi-multi-directional intellectual flows, and I think Gem, taking Gemma's uh, metaphor around the garden, but which also enriches the base domain of participants. So, you know, um, we can't be um, in midair on the trapeze all the time. You've got to hit back on the trapeze every so often. And again, I think also um, as things expand and grow, we've got to be careful not to be too precious that it wasn't exactly as we planned or as fine as we planned. Success maybe is that it spreads, but it spreads in ways that doesn't necessarily go to our norms. So I, I put up here usually Poiseuille's variant law that the density of intellectual thought diminishes with the distance from the focus that creates it. And very often, actually, you know, there are problems of success and growth very often and how things may, may take shapes we, we never anticipated or may take shapes that we've always got to be mindful of uh, the double-edged sword of what we do. So, But the opportunities are fantastic. And I think the other element of it is it's around um, ageing is hugely complex. Uh, one of the best way of... Illustrating it is through a good metaphor, and who provides the best metaphors but artists? So through humanities and arts, we provide extraordinary lenses. And I think one of the really interesting things, and if I were to say what I'd love to see happening, is I'd leave obviously more interaction between the theories of ageing, such as socio-emotional selectivity or selection optimization, compensation, and how they are how they are relayed, how they are contradicted through the uh, you know, high-quality fictional representations, musical representations, film representations. And what's really interesting is we've got such a rich variety out there of sources, everything from Clint Eastwood's movies to, you know, re- we see a- ageing taking an extraordinary presence. Uh, James Woods, the uh, literary critic, talks about you know, Alzheimer's being to 21st century literature, what tuberculosis was to 19th century literature. So the material is there and it's hugely, uh, the opportunities are fantastic. But, and in, in a wide range of varieties, I'm stunned at how smart and sensible filmmakers who 
probably don't have a gerontological advisor are able to tease out actually those broad issues of bringing in failure and success at the same time. So I would say Pixar's Up to Me is uh, still remains my number one film about ageing. Uh, you know, he's cranky, he's <laughs> unobliging. Um, you know, it's a film that starts with, with uh, um, um, infertility, lifelong disappointment and death. You know, it can only go up from there. Um, but Coco as well, and what 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 I think here, Coco to me is quite extraordinary from the point of view of aging, and it's just wonderful to see people um, generating uh, scholarly work that allows us to interrogate, to question aging. So uh, I, I have to say. Um, I think sometimes one of the dangers in this area is people feel nobody's listened to us and we're undervalued. And I, I, they're perhaps not quite aware that in other sectors and corners of not only gerontology but other aspects of life and academia, people feel nobody's listening to me and <laughs> I'm undervalued. And I'm just looking at this rich river and current uh, that is out there that is just waiting to be, to be, to be integrated, to be used so I have to say, um, and really, uh, not only do we have um, um, this in areas such as film, but actually through through literature. And I have to say, uh, I was discussing Ursula Le Guin's marvellous book, No Time to Spare, about the sissy strikes back. And just lovely talking, she incorporates, you know, the downsides, what, you know, perhaps we were saying the senescent sides, without compromising the whole. I love the idea... Uh, if I'm 90 and I believe I'm 45, I'm heading for a very bad time to get out of the bathtub. And it's got this element of humour and playfulness. And I'm a great fan of Huizingu's Homo Ludens as opposed to Homo Sapiens. Um, George Burns' book, How to Live to Be 100, you know, Who Wants to Live to Be 100? People who are 99 um, and that sort of thing. So, um, but I just loved again because I think a lot of us are concerned about the, you know, the gerontolism, the constant displaying of the, you know, the marathon runners and that sort of thing. So I thought uh, this was just lovely. Uh, look at me, I snarl at them, I can't run. Um, and the thought of me being a tight fitting, minimal clothing, uh, etc. I'm a sissy, I always was. And then she has this lovely bit at the end about the poster. I'd like a poster showing two old people with stooped backs and arthritic hands and time-worn faces sitting talking deep, deep in conversation. And the slogan would be, old age is not for the young. <laughs> so I think, I think, you know, as I look at the material that's potentially out there and what has been generated by, by older people, this is a fantastic opportunity. And it's an opportunity also for our... I think public engagement is clearly a part of what, you know, most universities, smart universities are understanding public engagement is important. And I think for many of us, again, we've always got to be careful about advocacy and academia together and uh, the old Nietzsche thing about convictions being greater enemies of truth than lies. So, Jose Saramago, and writing in his 86th year, his notebook, a little bit of variable quality, um, but... Uh, but this idea also about, you know, um, people, late-life artists very much more concerned about what people will think after them than necessarily what their peers think, which, I, you know, is talk about standing back and seeing what's important. You know, where do they go? How many of them remain and for how long and what for after all? 
I know these are idle words appropriate for someone turning 86. And then this intergenerational look back when I think of my grandfather, Geronimo, who in his final hours went to bid farewell to the trees he'd planted, embracing them and weeping because he wouldn't see them again. It's a lesson worth living. Fantastic stuff. Okay. And lastly, I think Annie DeFalco, much as I love these personal accounts, I sometimes think um, there's a, you know, a huge challenge around personal narratives as well. Annie DeFalco is really interesting in dissecting this out. So in the, in the field of fiction, and we talked about uh, uh, Elizabeth Strout, Olive again, but these extraordinary novels, um, um, uh, the, 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 the protagonist in The Stone Angel is... is this to me is gerontology 101 it used to be in high school curricula in Canada and she is she is clearly beginning to develop dementia she is incontinent she's really mean to her second son who is the less favourite son the favourite son died not too much spoiler alerts and it ends it's from birth to, to late life and it ends up in a hospital ward where she's with a younger woman beside her it's it's stunning. And even though she's kind of mean, we are rooting for her. It's a fantastic... And there must be something funny in the air in Manitoba because the US writer Carol Shields ended up living in Winnipeg as well and quite bizarrely has ended up writing almost a parallel novel. It's almost like, like uh, um, Newton and Leibniz discovering calculus at the same time. Uh, and it's from zero to 80. And both of these, to me... You know, Hannah Lacoy has these lovely work around later life being the time of authenticity. And one of the things I suppose I'm always looking for in HACG is searching for authenticity. And all these three novels, I mean, it's interesting, the sections on, on, on late-like love and sexuality in, in Olive Again are, are really, really realistic and touching. So... The medical humanities, where, what, what have I learned that perhaps we can avoid in HACG? Uh, and the, to be encouraged is the American Federation of American Colleges have now formally said as a group, after 60, 70 years, is that medical health humanities should be part, must be part of the curriculum. So it takes a while for these things, but the downsides are endless discussion as to what it is. Um, and that's where I think cultural gerontology wins in its in its in its definitions, which emphasise broadness and vague and disproportionate emphasis on undergraduate education relative to research and scholarship. Um, little presence in continuing professional development, though I have to say we're trying to do something about this, which is a nice parallel to trying to spread out. And certainly, in, in interestingly, Ireland is the first college where we've started mainstreaming. Uh, uh, medical humanities alongside cardiology and respiratory medicine and those things and there's been a huge take up it's been really interesting um, apparent unidisciplinarity I think I mentioned that at the, at the previous talk about how it's largely uh, authorship from either the humanities or from healthcare and a, a very unidirectional flow about what humanities and arts have to offer medicine rather than perhaps well actually you know to get that there the, the could be a two-way flow and a discrete silence and funding streams and I think that's one of the things you know that's always the challenge in interdisciplinarity and in medical and health humanities much of the stream actually comes from the healthcare schools or comes from healthcare philanthropy such as the Wellcome Foundation and again that's something that which but we're, we're seeing changes and certainly the Irish Research Council has funded some of our work which would, would, would seem to be medical and health humanities. So just this is 
again, trying not to be too uh, on the Stephen Sondheim, this was a, a slide which I had in the last one, and I suppose just a little bit of progress and thought about it. And this is a really nice paper about how to develop and grow. Where are we going from here? And that it's GSA, it, it corresponds to the gerontological entity in your own country or in the broader or gerontology. And he talked about three options. First of all, to expand its intellectual and institutional presence within GSA. And again, I've got some great allies here um, uh, like Ulla, and we've been doing a bit of work about actually beginning to engage with the other elements of GSA. And it's, it's, I'll, I'll talk through some of that, particularly through, because in education, the wonderful thing is they've actually put it in there that there should be humanities and arts. But actually, it doesn't really seem clear how it's been actioned, which is great because it's a naive territory. So let's not spoil it by by by, by um, premature foreclosure. Secondly, HSC voices to fervently challenge the gerontological imagination. I'm a little bit less easy with this one because actually I think it almost assumes that within gerontology there aren't critical voices. And there are plenty of critical voices, for example, uh, critiquing uh, successful ageing, for example. But... Of course, we should be firm. I, I think, and this is perhaps where you were talking about, uh, Paul was talking about, you know, critical gerontology, cultural gerontology, and there are differences. Um, and lastly, forging partnerships outside GSA. And I think we're certainly very key. I n never see any real problem about in, uh, having a separate focus that focuses deep down. There are issues, however, uh, I think particularly around funding, and um, recognising that if you want to insert something into gerontology, very often you're buying into a larger organisation that actually is doing things like advocacy and education. And certainly the fees, for example, for membership of GSA are going to a conference, like the conference fee is, they are large and they're a potential barrier. And the sort of thing we have to think through. So looking at the, uh, the education side of it, there is within GSA an academy for uh, it's now an academy for gerontology and higher education. And what they talk about, and I think uh, in terms of what a programme should be in gerontology, is that before it's established, you should have people on board who are going to uh, organise a multidisciplinary advisory committee with representatives from the various academic disciplines that are to be part of the programme, which sounds very obvious, but it's not that obvious, of course. And um, faculty teaching... Um, should be affiliated with the institution through programme planning, implementation, faculty development and student engagement. So in, in general, what they recommend is three semester hours of what would be seen as kind of the uh, porous membranes as they are, uh, some of the more classical sides of uh, gerontology. But what's interesting is the further module, and this is going back quite a long time, further module from three of the humanities, a fairly broad, non-exclusive, non and can be from other disciplines and should be selected with approval by the gerontology faculty. And indeed, if you look at the three other areas, you could well find elements of, of HACG with, within at least two of them. So we had some discussion about this and a kind of discussion at, uh, at the virtual meeting, which was meant to be in Phoenix, and largely talked around that Biology of ageing is actually a relatively small section of a lot of gerontology associations. So if you want to put biology of ageing into your course, what do you do? You involve biology of ageing faculty or healthcare gerontologist faculty, develop recommended reading lists or online resources, but you make it a strategic item to, de to develop stronger links. Um, 
And ideally, if we were to incorporate humanities and ageing, we'd involve humanities and arts faculty with an interest in ageing, or we'd look into uh, many people come from different origins and sources, gerontologists with humanities credentials, develop recommended reading lists and online resources, make strategic items to develop stronger links. And I think one of the interesting possibilities is interinstitutional consortia to try, particularly in a developmental phase. Um, so, as ever, most talks in academia end up with FRIN, further research is needed. Um, but um, So what we're doing is we're developing a questionnaire now uh, among Aggie members to say, what element, and it's fairly open-ended, just to ask them what's in your course around humanities, arts and cultural gerontology, uh, and what opportunities do you see, identification of barriers, facilitators, innovative practice, collaboration. Um, we need to promote scholarly research opportunities and awards of cultural gerontology to other areas. So I think it's, there's a degree of evangelisation. Uh, engagement with bodies such as the NIA, National Institute on Aging, the John A. Hartford Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Because, in fact, although the NIA has taken an interest in uh, sort of art and music in the healthcare setting, they actually haven't taken an interest in humanities and arts as an, an hugely important lens for understanding aging. So that's our next step, is getting in, in touch with the NIA and the John A. Hartford and uh, engagement with the broader grouping of gerontology and grant distortion towards uh, uh, life sciences and exons and uh, epidemiology. So, finishing up, uh, I think um, uh, engagement outwards is also important. And one of the things that we, we did uh, in, at the last in-person meeting is we had a really interesting um, uh, educational site session, which are often things like going to a nursing home or some other activity. We, we did one in a, an art gallery looking at late life creativity with uh, a medical humanities educator. So uh, lined up for Indianapolis in uh, November next year, uh, we've got a joint programme with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. So they're going to run three concerts, which it's obviously a benefit for them. If some of four and a half thousand delegates go, uh, it's a hook for their audiences. Uh, we'll do pre-concert talks and we're going to do a joint symposium. In Austin, we did it with um, a group that look after homeless and impoverished older musicians and it was a really interesting symposium. And then this is the bit which we're really keen to do and it's small steps, but it's the first time that I'm aware of that we as, a, as the HACG advisory panel have linked with the minorities advisory panel and with the Indigenous uh, People's Special Interest Group and we're going to an educational site visit about um, uh, ageing through American Indian culture uh, and uh, so um, I, I <laughs> Grimley Evans the, uh, the, the Professor of Geriatric Medicine Oxford always said if you were to be a geriatrician you had to be a cautious optimist and I have to say in the field of what we're doing uh, I remain a cautious optimist. Thanks very much. I'm just going to get into it. I am going to share with you two projects today. This is one of those talks that started with one title and has meandered in my head over the last two days. So I'm just going to say what I think is interesting. And if I don't match the slides, my students will say this is always what happens. But essentially what I'm trying to, to draw our attention to is really what Anne has asked us to do around interdisciplinarity. So try to answer this question when framing this talk. Why do I think? Actually, not why do I think interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary studies of ageing is important. Why do I do it? 
So it's kind of a show, don't tell presentation in the sense that I'm going to share two projects with you where I actually do work with people who are not in the same discipline as me. And I th when I thought about this, what we have in common is this need to challenge this narrative of decline. To, 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 to say, to answer what Des was saying, it isn't just about how long you live. It's like, what's the meaning of living a long life? And, and why is that important? And I think that what all of us are doing in cultural gerontology by crossing these boundaries is that we're actually being profoundly political because we're challenging the established norms and we're saying, look at it from this way. So two different uh, projects. So it's really people. And Ulla and I were talking about this this morning that actually... In my experience, when it works, it's actually nothing to do with the discipline. It's to do with the people. And if you find somebody that you can work with, you will find ways to work together. And I'm very lucky that I have a lot of academic freedom in my job, so I can do that. So one of the people that I've worked with repeatedly is Leonie Hannon, who's an historian. Actually, we started working together on material culture, and we have a PhD student now working on that together. Um, she's really kind of big into public history and also... Uh, is writing a book about uh, medicine of the 18th century at the moment. But she and I, she comes in with me now. We teach a second year undergrad so social policy, English, sociology, liberal arts students about ageing. So I'm going to give you a little example from some of her lectures. The project, though, that I think this group is going to be most interested in is this AHRC project, which is led by linguists called Jane Lucea. Uh, and these are the other people that I work with on that. I have a little stuff about discussion, but I think we're doing that naturally, so I don't need to do that. This is the thing that Leonie and I have worked on most recently, which is this article I mentioned yesterday, where we're two feminists, so she's an historian and I'm a social scientist, and reading back through G. Stanley Hall's Senescence, it really does, with the 21st century, <laughs> you know, the, the, the foreclosure, he had a bad case of, of, of premature foreclosure, but I'm actually really, really proud of this work. But it did take a long time to write this article. But it was something that was extremely uh, rewarding because I learned so much from it. I'm now going to show you just one or two slides that we use when we are teaching our students. So when we're doing our very first lecture and we're talking about demography, we encourage the students to take a long view. So we use this. This is a really nice, easy to read book that was published recently by Paul Moreland, where he talks about uh, demographic change in time and space, so over history as well as around the world. And what we do is we introduce students to the idea of the um, stages of the demographic transition, and then but we explain them using historical examples. So this is the, the kind of current thing. This is what the social policy students would be looking at. Maybe Sarah Harper's work, where she's describing how actually. The world's population is slowly ageing, transitioning and changing. You're all uh, very familiar with this, I'm sure. So how do we explain this to the students then? We actually look at, we take them through the four stages. I'm just going to show you two because of time. And this is what Leone has put together, that actually stage one of the demographic transition is actually quite similar to what England was like up until about 1780. So what we do is, then we go on to stage two, etc. I'm not going to go into detail on this because of time. But what we do by using history in this way is we, we play with the student's sense of time and space. So rather than just looking at ageing in this linear way, they're thinking, right, so that's what it's like in Sudan now, and that's what it was like here in the 19th century. And it really helps them to understand, to put ageing in perspective. And she uses this, for example, to talk about how public health is important. This is Jon Snow's cholera map. So that's really famous that he identified this was a waterborne disease. So the, the, this kind of thing really helps the students to understand that old age has always been with us, 
It's never a single identity. It always happens in the context of the culture at the time, etc. That it always intersects poverty and things. But most of all, by taking that long view, they can say, oh, it isn't just a matter of having a public awareness campaign to stop people being ageist. There's actually a very, very long history of the world, uh, you know, viewing older people in this age. I'm just going to do a small key change and take a breath. Project two. <laughs> so this is one where uh, Jane is the PI, as I said, and it was awarded AHRC funding a few years ago. And like many people, uh, we have had to make the segue from doing everything in the real world to putting it online. So Jane is that dark-haired beauty there in the corner. Jane is an early career researcher, Grant it was, and Paula and I came on. So Paula ran the ARC Aging programme, and then we recruited Carolina as a researcher, and then the person who was our outreach officer is now a very famous author called Jan Carson. And this was fantastic in terms of us having um, a really big presence in terms of, say, the world of writers, but also in terms of literature. Because the project is, uses fictional representations of dementia, puts those uh, extracts to different groups of people. I will explain this in more detail. And we look at reader response. I'm going to give you a little bit of why I think this is important uh, theoretically, right, from my perspective as, as somebody who's studying ageing. When you think about dementia, whatever we might know about it, how it appears in public discussion is really quite, often quite extreme. And it kind of swings between a very, you know, it's really, really biomedical. I think uh, Des would agree with that. Public perceptions are around it being a syndrome. And we have the apocalyptic demography representation of even this quote I found recently from the WHO, you know, that dementia is the seventh leading cause of death worldwide. Those kind of statements are true, but they're also really, really political because what they're doing is they're not saying, well, actually, dementia affects people who are very old. You know, so they don't, it's decontextualised use of statistics, which happens all the time around this. So I'm going to just pull on three pieces of work because what I kind of did with the analysis on this is quite akin to a critical discourse analysis, I think. But don't hang me for not using Foucault. But basically, what I've done is... Uh, drawn on some really interesting work of people who are doing this and looking at public representations of dementia. So this piece of work by Clark has really become quite classic in that it's the, she, she looked at um, mass print magazines over a 10-year period and basically couldn't find any people with dementia in the representation. Now, we're, our project is about looking at fictional characters of dementia. When I start to look at this work, I think, well, actually, who's the main character in public discourse? It's the disease. The person with dementia disappears. We see this again with an image-based study, which is done by Harvey and Brooks. Uh, this is a great article, if you can lay your hands on it, and where they find that looking at images online, so it's a bit like what you've been doing, uh, Julia, they find that it is very objectified, dehumanising terms, and a bit of the stuff like Tom is uh, talking about in Twitter with the, the bits of older people's bodies being presented. The article that I got most excited about when I was uh, doing my background research is this one, which is an ageing in society, Battles and Breakthroughs, Representations of Dementia in the British Press. This used a very similar methodology to what we're using. They put it corpus linguistics, which some of you will understand, we can explain afterwards, and critical discourse analysis. And they looked at how dementia is presented in the British press. And they found that the focus again was on the disease that is very much determined uh, in medical, very much de described in medical terms, and this focus on the pathological processes. So for me, as a critical gerontologist, I'm like, where is, where is the person with dementia in this? Where, where are they? 
So our research really tries to address this by engaging with people with dementia. Now, just to say, that's our research question, how can the language of dementia fiction help us to understand the experience of living with dementia? But I would say some of what Des was talking about earlier is more like it's literary discussion, you know. We're not doing that, it's linguistics. What we're really doing is looking at the language that the writers use. Uh, and these are the books that we chose. And I'm going to explain to you in detail how is that done. So there's an absolutely massive boom in dementia fiction. Jane spent six months putting together this corpus, so like a huge big body of words that are to do with dementia from these fictional accounts. Then we worked as a team to select 12 different novels that, and to pull out extracts. Now, there's a whole discussion we could have about diversity that I'm not going to get into here. But there is a problem with the representation of the characterisation of people with dementia being little old English-speaking women who are middle class. Very interesting. We wanted, though, to look at the internal perspective because the thing that was, Jane was really interested in and that I was fascinated but also slightly terrified of was could we actually access the internal experience of having dementia by using fictional accounts? And throughout the project, I was driving the rest of them mad, saying, I'm not sure, is it going to be right? Are we going to be presenting stereotypes? We could be getting it wrong. And we have put together a range of different extracts. But basically what we're doing is testing the fictional accounts on different groups of readers. So we have social work students, carers of people with dementia, people with dementia themselves, and the general public. We had a very uh, rigorous method, which actually was kind of easier to enforce by doing it online because you just stuck to the same format. The extract was introduced, it was read aloud, there was a reader response questionnaire, and then we had a discussion, and that's what I'm going to bring to you today. And I'm just looking at what the people with dementia said in response to some of the extracts. And actually, I'm just going to show you one extract. We worked really closely with Dementia NI, so a local charity, and that's how we were involved with the people with dementia. There was a Zoom meeting once a week for six weeks. So it was the same people over a six-week period, which was very labour-intensive, but from my perspective, really interesting because you built up a kind of a, a knowledge of these, these uh, participants. We played the recording, which was Jan Carson, the author, reading an extract from one of the books, and then they filtered in. So this is the extract I'm going to share with you. This is why I need a little extra couple of minutes because it's, a little, it's three and a half minutes long, but it's worth looking, listening to. This is the, one of the characters that we chose from that huge corpus. She, her name is Marina, and she's in The Madonnas of Leningrad, a really great book. And these were the stylistic features that Jane and Carolina were interested in. And then the themes were around this past and present and movement. It becomes very... Um, can I just play the recording? It is as though she has been transported into a two-dimensional world, a book perhaps, and she exists only on this page. When the page turns, whatever was on the previous page disappears from her view. Marina finds herself standing in front of the kitchen sink, holding a saucepan of water, but she has no idea why. Is she rinsing the pan or has she just finished filling it up? It is a puzzle. Sometimes it requires all her wits to piece together the world with the fragments she is given. An open can of folgers, a carton of eggs on the counter, the faint scent of toast. Breakfast. Has she eaten? She cannot recall. Well, does she feel hungry or full? Hungry, she decides. And here is the miracle of five white eggs nested in a foam carton. She can almost taste the satiny yellow of the yolks on her tongue. Go ahead, she tells herself. Eight. 
When her husband Dimitri comes into the kitchen carrying the dirty breakfast dishes, she is poaching more eggs. What are you doing? he asks. She notes the dishes in his hands, the smear of dried yolk in a bowl, the evidence that she has eaten already, perhaps no more than ten minutes ago. I'm still hungry. In fact, her hunger has vanished, but she says it nonetheless. Dimitri sets down the dishes and takes the pan from her hands, sets it down on the counter also. His dry lips graze the back of her neck and then he steers her out of the kitchen. The wedding, he reminds her. We need to get dressed. Elena called from the hotel and she's on her way. Elena is here? She arrived late last night, remember? Marina has no recollection of seeing her daughter and she feels certain she couldn't forget this. Where is she? She spent the night at the airport. Her flight was delayed. Has she come for the wedding? Yes. There is a wedding this weekend, but she can't recall the couple who is marrying. Dimitri says she has met them, and it's not that she doubts him, but... Now who is getting married, she asks. Katie, Andre's girl, to Cooper. Katie is her granddaughter, but who is Cooper? You'd think she'd remember that name. We met him at Christmas, Dimitri says, and again at Andre and Noreen's a few weeks ago. He's very tall. He is waiting for some sign of recognition, but there is none. You wore that blue dress with the flowers, and they had salmon for supper, he prompts. Still nothing. She sees a ghost of despair in his eyes. Sometimes that look is her only hint that something is missing. She begins with the dress. Blue. A blue flowered dress. Bidden, it appears in her mind's eyes. She bought it at Penny's. It has a pleated collar, she announces triumphantly. What's that? His brow furrows. The dress and branches of lilac flowers. She can call up the exact shade of the fabric. It is the same vivid robin's egg as the dress worn by the lady in blue. Thomas Gainsborough, portrait of the Duchess of Beaufort. She packed that very painting during the evacuation. She remembers helping to remove it from the skilt frame and then from the stretcher that held it taut. Whatever is eating her brain consumes only the fresher memories, the unripe moments. Her distant past is preserved better than preserved. Moments that occurred in Leningrad 60-some years ago reappear, vivid, plump and perfumed. So... You can see it's a beautiful novel. It's a, it takes a bit of time to share that, but I think it's important for you to see the difference between a beautifully written fictional account and what I would produce if I was like, you know, doing qualitative interviews with people <laughs> about their experience of forgetting they'd had breakfast. So um, I've left out a slide here now, which I should have included, which is really how the people with dementia reported the experience of engaging with these extracts over six weeks. And the thing that was really clear was that they kept saying, thank you so much for asking us. Nobody ever asks us what we think. Thanks so much. The other thing that I took away from it as a researcher was they're totally not worried about having dementia. I mean, of course, it's a challenge. But the group that are absolutely terrified of dementia are the people who are caring. I'm doing an analysis at the moment, and I'm starting to think, when you look at dementia from these different perspectives, and you really bring in people's lived experience, and you give them different depictions, the one that we're all scared of, the one that dominates in public dis discussion is the carer's perspective. And that if we started to, to, to take more, to pay more attention to the person with dementia's perspective, maybe we would all be less fearful. Uh, so this is how we're coding it. 
We're having great crack coding at the moment. By that, I mean it's like taking ages. So the linguists have produced loads of codes. I have produced codes. And this was in the inductive stage in the summer. And now we're coding up all of the, date, the transcripts. But this is an example from Naomi, sorry, Andy, who is one of our uh, people with dementia. They're all pseudonyms, obviously. And here he is saying how Marina's experience from that extract really is, it's a horrible feeling, but he's really endorsing it. He's using his knowledge of living with dementia to explain how Marina is feeling. He's saying she's trying so hard in her mind to remember things. You know, she is trying. Then we have another example from Danny. And he said just yesterday evening the very same thing had happened to him. Where he had that slippage between past and present and he couldn't remember. You know, he couldn't understand the context of the room he was in. So like Marina's forgotten that she's had breakfast, he said yesterday evening, whenever the same thing happened to me, when I went out here from the kitchen where I am now, out to the hallway, my daughter's dog was there and wondered how he got there. And she said, he came up with me the time I came up to make sure you took your tablets. I don't remember nothing about it. So I think that's, for me, that's like, oh, well, that's a bit of insight. So he's able to remember that that happened last night, but at the time he was completely lost about what was going on. Um, so there's loads more I could say, obviously. But what I think for us as interdisciplinary scholars is I have found this extremely enriching. I've learned so much and I think I'm going to continue to learn for, for years from this. But for us, I think in, in gerontology and for me in social policy in particular, I'm always trying to, you know, cut that advocacy element of always trying to, to put forward an alternative to the narrative of decline is that I think that something like fiction offers a fantastic kind of middle ground a shared cultural narrative that you can assess whether you agree with it or not, that is somewhere between those sensationalist headlines that are, you know, everybody's terrified, 98% of older people are terrified of dementia, those kind of headlines, versus the very technical neuroscience, which is too biomedical. Because really dementia is a disability that people live with for, for a period of time. And that by using these fictional accounts, which I was very sceptical about at the start, that actually the, the personhood of those fictional characters is maintained. You could go back at any stage and Marina would still be at that point. In a progressive disease, I think that's really interesting and an important thing to be able to do. There's limitations, of course. It's not real-life testimony. But I do draw uh, a lot of comfort from Hannah Zillig's work, just don't we all. But what she says as well is that, yes, they can be, over, they can be overly negative or overly positive and inaccurate. So that's why I think it's important that we actually do... Um, assess them and talk about, you know, they're having a big impact on culture, so why not look at how people read them and what they mean to people. So I don't think I'm going to say too much more. I think I'll leave it as a nice moment there for the discussion. I had a couple of more slides, but I think they're going to come up anyway um, in terms of making this broader argument about trying to draw together these narrative threads to construct a different story around what it means to live a long life. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.